Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. Welcome lovers of product. Today I am here with Tito Carriero, who is the, well, he's from Segment, which you've all heard about probably, a great rapidly growing company. And his role is overseeing all of engineering, product, and design. Uh, Tito, can you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your product and your background? Yeah, sure thing. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So what is Segment? Uh, Segment provides customer data infrastructure, or CDI for short. At the most basic levels, we help companies collect, unify, and connect all of their first-party data, so the information about uh, their own interactions with their customers, to marketing, analytics, data warehousing tools. We support over 300 different tools across a variety of different channels. So this, the collection piece allows companies to have a unified view of their customer data across all of the channels, and then sending it to all of these tools helps to power great customer experiences. And in terms of my background, uh, let's see, I started my career at Facebook as kind of a product engineer. In the late startup days, we probably had about 400, 500 total employees at that point. And I was maybe the third or fourth engineer on Facebook ads. So helped build that product, which turned out to be a really huge product, obviously. I have mixed feelings today, but certainly when we were building it, it was really, really fun. So did that for about three and a half years at Facebook, transitioning into an engine manager role. And then at Dropbox, I joined Dropbox when it was about 100 total employees, really straddled the, the boundary of product and engineering. I sort of always had officially an engineering management role, but I, I did a lot of product work and in particular championing the early Dropbox for Business product and eventually owning most of the sort of product engineering team. So I was there for about three and a half years as well, and then joined Segment uh, about four years ago, originally as the VP of engineering, and about two years ago, started overseeing product and design as well. And it's been quite a ride. Uh, joined Segment was about 50 total employees, and we're somewhere between 500 and 600 today. So it's been quite a bit of growth, and uh, obviously, the product has evolved quite a bit since I've been here, which I think is probably the most rewarding and, and fun part. So I'd be remiss if I, I didn't jump on this thread. Talk to me about your Facebook ads experience, like what it was like then, what it is now, what you think of, you know, the, their challenges today and maybe what you do a little different. And I, I know I threw a lot there, but uh, yeah, slowly yeah. Through that. so let me start with what hasn't changed. I think I actually think a lot of the early ideas we had when we were building the very first version of the product, this was back in 2008. I think the ideas about the sort of this ability to do this highly customized targeting and just like, I mean, that was the product differentiator uh, that, that Facebook could do. I think that vision turned almost exactly into to what it is today. So I, I kind of laugh. I mean, I'm sure that zero lines of code that I wrote are still in the software. I'm sure it's been overhauled, you know, every two years as the teams have totally changed. And I'm sure, I don't know exactly how big the ads org is, but I'm sure it's thousands of engineers at this point. So I, I think given everything that's changed from an organizational structure, structure perspective, I'm just amused at how similar the product idea is as the product idea we had in 2008. Whew, I don't know, we could spend a whole hour on, on what could have been done differently. Certainly feel like missing the boat a bit on some of the just consumer desire for privacy and, and understanding that. I, I think obviously all of the, the political stuff is really challenging and complex. And uh, I, I'm not deep enough to, to comment there 
I just, I wish that all of that had been spotted earlier. I feel like Facebook has been backpedaling quite a bit and too slowly. And, you know, they're really hard questions, you know, ethical questions about what Facebook should be doing uh, that I'm not completely prepped to answer. But I I do think just a little bit late to the game on on kind of figuring out the kinds of bigger than Facebook problems that could result from a, a really powerful ad targeting platform like the one that was built. Yeah, but it's no, hard when you're when your north star metric is revenue and you're really really good at revenue. It's it's like hard to argue with that. It's just like at some point other north star metrics might have become more important. But these, yeah, these are hard questions. I think. I think it, it, the general public doesn't know how hard of a problem these are to solve. Right? It, it's a hard problem to solve when you have a really powerful, you know, social network like Facebook is that's driven through advertising. Like how, how do you actually solve this problem? It's not an easy one to solve. I mean, it was like listen, watching 60 minutes about YouTube and all the, you know, billions of hours of video they have, right? It's not easy to identify and remove, you know, all the different types of things that could be offensive, right? And then even just defining what that term means and Facebook says similar problems. So I think the general public kind of you know, lacks some of the perspective or context to understand the difficulty of what some people ask. But at the same time, there, there is like an, an ethical responsibility for product teams to kind of drive product that is in the best interest of their consumers, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's some interesting questions about who the customer is, like the customer, the advertisers, certainly as we were getting this product off the ground in 2008, that's kind of all we, we thought about is, you know, how could, well, not all we thought about, but I think that was the primary concern is like, we have nothing, like we have something that's not valuable to any advertisers, like we need to go build something that is valuable to advertisers, you know, at some point, the sort of and Facebook users, the consumers become important, some point the you know, the different governments become important. So I think there is like a, a really hard question about who the customer is. And I think it transcends a lot of just like the normal way we think about product management that is really hard and really nuanced just from that perspective as well. In addition to the technical feasibility, the challenges you're talking about, which is hugely difficult to report on what is fake news in an article and you know do these kinds of technological things that also require a lot of judgment. There's also just questions about who the customer is and who Facebook should be answering to. And uh, yeah, yeah, beyond well, my pay grade. Well, like you said, there's probably a whole hour there. Maybe we can we could delve into that at another time where we can we can talk a little bit about how we're building products that maybe feel like they're built for someone but are actually intended for someone else, right? And there's there's a lot of different intricacies there. But let's let's yeah, jump absolutely. on segment, right? Uh, let's let's move away from Facebook and, and jump to segment. So talk to me about what led you to segment and what you're excited to do there. So, so I originally got introduced through a mutual friend. I didn't know a ton about Segment. I think as I as I learned more about it, there was something that was really resonant for me. Which so in my role at Dropbox, I was overseeing product engineering, and so typically there were a bunch of different teams. Uh, remember, there was a sales team once that wanted to uh, experiment with live chat on the website. They wanted to basically get people on the Dropbox pricing page and start up a chat, and which is now pretty common practice. But the sales team was experimenting with, with an early tool sort of before Intercom and Drift and others uh, came along, but an early tool to do that. So I remember building an integration for that. I think the marketing team had like an endless stream of experiments and tools that they wanted to use. And more often than not, I would say no to them, but it always broke my heart a little bit. And you know, then we had a number of different in-house tools. We spent quite a bit of resources building an email tool, building a data warehousing stack, 
And so as I dug into segment, I remember being blown away, you know, first of all, by how robust the ecosystem was in terms of like all of these incredibly cool things that you could do, you know, as soon as you're out in the real world of like all of the vendors out there, that was my first realization. And then I think my second one was I was just really attracted to this idea of empowering all of the, the business teams, all of the marketing teams, all of the product teams. And I think the abstraction that is segment where you, you install your you know, application tracking once, and then suddenly you're unlocked to always say yes to these integrations because turning these integrations on is, is the flick of a switch. Um, that was a really cool concept because I, I just, I feel like a lot of, especially business and marketing and just some of the like less technical folks often are blocked from doing the very best job that they could do because they're not using the tools that they really want to be using because of this tough integration problem. And so I think being both blown away by the ecosystem that could be powered up with an abstraction-like segment, and then also the fact that you could light up the entire marketing and business side of the house with the tools that they actually want to use and empower them, that was a really cool combination for me. Can you share what uh, what percentage of users are across different departments? Like, is it more product and marketing? Is it sales? Is it dev? You know, who's who's using? You know, uh, who's connecting those types of systems from those departments via segment the most? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah it totally makes sense. I I, I understand the question. Um, so historically, we've always had sort of like a VP of engineering, CTO buyer. So this is early days yeah. of segment, and usually those folks were tasked with sort of a lot of the unpleasant integration work that would be supporting the marketing team or the sales team or the you know analytics team or data engineering team. So they ended up being kind of the main buyer persona. I don't know the exact mix of tools, but what I will say is actually maybe even more interesting is the shift of the persona that, that we're selling to. So we, we added this product personas, which I think I'll talk about a, a little bit later in a little bit more depth. But the interesting thing about personas is personas is really it's a marketing tool. So it's a tool that the value you get out of personas is you target your ads audiences uh, much more narrowly in much more dynamic fashion. So if you want to reach out to everyone who was like, was thinking, considering a purchase, you can like remove when they actually make the purchase, you can easily remove them from the audience. So you're not still serving them ads, or you can send much more targeted campaigns like people who have added something to the shopping cart but haven't actually checked out, it's very easy to, to sort of make those audience computations. So it's, it's really good for reducing ad spend. And it's also really good for personalizing outreach campaigns across email and push notifications and other channels. And so Personas was this whole new buyer. And I think, frankly, we, we didn't think enough as we were <laughs> developing the feature. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is really valuable. We've been you know, asked to do this by, by customers and you know, we're going to do it. But how much that ends up changing the sales motion and the whole go-to-market motion and the whole way we position the product. I think despite that being an incredibly valuable feature that definitely you know has performed well in revenue and has really attracted a lot of new customers, it, it has really thrown our sort of marketing message and how we think about the buyer and, and focus on a single buyer. It's thrown a lot of that for a loop. And so I think that piece is, is really interesting too. Maybe one other interesting buyer I'll throw into the mix is we've also gone up market over time. And so obviously uh, a lot more sort of much larger enterprise deals. And that's like a completely different buyer. That's a little bit more of a CIO type buyer. Although sometimes it comes from marketing budget at uh, one of these enterprises. Sometimes it comes from the CIO budget. And that's like a whole different buyer. So I think the most interesting thing, or maybe one of the most interesting things of being at Segment is just watching the buyer evolve from a VPN who's trying to like, you know, 
just set up a bunch of tools and save a couple engineers to a marketer who's getting a different kind of business value to a CIO who's thinking, you know, often these enterprises are thinking about a digital transformation. They're thinking like, hey, there's these direct to consumer brands that are popping up that are having this amazing experience with customers, you know, the uh, all birds of the world and, you know, they're eating our lunch and we need to go make that direct relationship with the customer and, and you know, segments of product that can really help accelerate that journey. So lots of different buyers. And I, I think that's both great in that the breadth gives us a ton of opportunity, but it's also, uh, it's hard. It's, it's hard to focus. It's hard to make a really tight, you know, product positioning message. And I, I think it's frankly something we're still thinking through and, and trying to figure out. Yeah, talk to us about um, the challenges when you have lots of different, you know, user types from different departments, right? Even if it's all, say, even bought by that VP of engineering, he's he's kind of using it as a tool to empower these different departments, right? So talk to me about the challenges that that entails or creates. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, I mean, from my perspective, it's really thinking about the portfolio allocation and just like where we're going to, to place our investments. I think, you know, we're always... Tempt, I mean, segments of product that, that naturally has a ton of adjacencies just because of like the nature of what we're doing. Uh, we end up touching all of this, you know, critical customer data, which is the lifeblood of, of most businesses. And so then there's questions of like, do we empower marketing? Do we empower product? Do we empower engineering, data engineering, analytics teams? Like just which direction do we go? So I think it's just really being clear at the beginning of a year that there are 20 things we could do. We are going to pick two or three of those things and, and, and do them really, really well. I, I think that's the biggest sort of internal problem, and especially my role where I'm, I'm thinking a lot about those bets that I that we want to make as an organization. And, you know, lots of conflict. I mean, the success team wants one thing. Different sales teams want different things, depending on which vertical and which size of customer they're selling to. It just I, I know this is the classic product problem, but I feel like it's even expanded version of that problem when you throw in more buyers and like kind of fundamentally different. I mean, I do think the digital transformation pitch for an enterprise is in some ways a fundamentally different value prop than the like, you're never going to need to worry about turning on another tool, even though the product that solves the two is roughly similar. So I, I think it's like this focus problem is probably the number one thing internally. And I think externally, it's, you know, it's hard. You only have one homepage, you get one tagline that you get to, to put out there. Like, is that tag, should that tagline be for the startup person? Should it be for the, you know, enterprise exec? Should it be a little bit more at that, you know, personas marketing use case? Should it be a little bit more at the protocols, which is the, you know, uh, our data quality product, which is really aimed at a sort of a data engineering analytics buyer? Should it be about sort of not needing to build any more integrations, which is a little bit more of the engineering pitch? And so, yeah, what do you put on that, that single marketing surface that is the most important surface? And, you know, how, how do you? tell that story in a way that's going to make sense for, for all people who come to your site. And not, so not something did, I think we've mastered, but at least th there's the problem for you. What did Segment pick and why? We are still picking. I think it's just something that we're still trying to figure out and we're still, we're still struggling with. We have a new homepage coming in the next month or two, and we are trying to, um, I think one of our co-founders said it best. We're trying to create a really good uh, choose your own adventure index page. So when you come, if if you don't know what's going on and you want a sales demo and you want to talk to a salesperson face-to-face, -face, which tends to be a little bit more of the enterprise interaction, we're excited to get you to that in the click of a button. If you know exactly what you're doing, you just want to create an account, we're trying to create a really easy path for that. The second module basically has you know segment for engineering, segment for marketing, and segment for product teams and just sort of helping each of those folks understand what, what they're looking at. So I think we're just trying to make it a little bit easier when you come in to, you know, 
whatever you're trying to do to be able to pretty quickly uh, click a link and, and find the, the content you're looking for. I don't know if that's making the tough decision on that you're asking for, but I, I think that choose your own adventure is sort of the mantra that we think is really important because right now I think the homepage we have in production is a little bit too, we select for you a little bit too much. And if it's the one you happen to want, that's great. But if it's not the, the path you happen to want, then you get confused and eventually frustrated and the, the right interaction does not happen. Got it. Got it. So let's change the focus a little bit. Let's talk about product market fit, something that, you know, all PMs kind of struggle with. And then even a lot of people struggle with defining. Talk to me about how you find product market fit and then how you take that to scale. Yeah. So I, I was not at Segment the, the first time we found product market fit. I joined when it was a Series B company. Um, Peter has a very, Peter's our CEO, has a very famous story of just he was convinced that the original analytics.js idea was a terrible idea. He was trying to convince his co-founders of this and they agreed to put it on Hacker News. And as soon as it fell to the bottom of Hacker News with no attention, they were going to abandon the idea and move on to something else. Of course, it rose to the top of Hacker News and the rest is, is sort of history. But I, I do think some good lessons in there. Segment founder, co-founders had been basically wandering the desert for a year or two really not doing enough talking to customers and doing a lot more of just building ideas that they were excited about. They had good gut intuition for, but it turns out like, I'm sure this is a classic story that uh, everyone has heard before, so I won't belabor it, but it just turns out that you just spend a lot of time building and then you get this little you know day or two at the end where you get the validation and you realize you're wrong and you ask yourself, oh, how could I have done that more efficiently? And of course the answer is talking to customers before you do the build. And so I think this putting it on Hacker News before it was actually fully built out when it was a little bit more of a concept. I mean, it, it was an open source library, but it, it hadn't had a ton of investment yet. And seeing that validation, seeing that pull and really letting customers start pulling you know, the founders and, and the employees toward what they wanted just ended up being this way more efficient way to go about things. And so I, I think that's that's one of the key things just culturally we all feel. I think, for instance, we're always asking for what's the research on this? What's the validation? Show me stories. Show me like, you know, early anecdotal data that supports this hypothesis before you start building and you know, doing the whole you know, paper mocks thing and getting on a whiteboard and drawing it and seeing if customers are excited and then building a super MVP prototype. And so just that really iterative process where you're really trying to, to de-risk by actually showing it to people and actually talking to people. And so I think that was kind of in place culturally when I got here was blown away by just sort of how many Slack channels we had open with customers, you know, for lots of purposes, basic account management, but I think, you know, beta, alpha and beta features, just trying out ideas. We had a couple customers who were just champions who love to share ideas and just always wanted to know about something even before it was like a feature in production. They just wanted to hear ideas. So just having that kind of customer discourse going on, um, that's always been in the culture. I think a lot of my job uh, as I started working with the product team about two years ago, it was to your point, figuring out how to scale that process beyond the, the early employees, beyond the founders. I think, so we ended up, the, the challenge that was put to us was building sort of increasing ACD so the size of the accounts we had um, by building sort of new valuable features that were, were so valuable that people would pay for an add-on for them. And we ended up building two, and, and this was mostly last year, and it's been interesting to, to watch how those scale. And I think the thing that fascinates me about this, and it kind of shows that there's no one-size-fits-all way, but I think we went almost polar opposite approaches for the, the two that we built. And I, you know, I think they, they each have their good 
things and, and there are bad things about them, but happy to talk about that journey if that's interesting to you on, on what we actually did. But did I answer your first question well yeah, enough? Yeah, I, I think you did. And I, I think it kind of leads into the next thought. So you're, you weren't there for finding product market to fit the first time, but you're around for scaling it. But you're, you were there as you kind of managed to do it for a second product, right? Talk to me through that process and, and how the data and information you had with the past success of segment helped and what was different about it? Yeah, great question. So the, there are two products. One was Personas, which we shipped in about May of last year. And then we shipped a second one last year in October-ish, September, October-ish uh, called Protocols. I, I actually think the approach was was fairly different for both of them. So I'll talk about them them separately. But with Personas, I would say that this was always sort of a little bit more of like a product vision led thing. I think we're kind of collecting this this customer data and and sending it to these tools and sending it to data warehouses. But we kind of always had this vision and had always heard from marketers that achieving this single view of the customer, which I know is a very trite phrase, decades old at this point. But I think we like looked at the data we were actually collecting we said, like, this is all of the data that people actually want in the single view of a customer. This is like the complete set across all channels. So we had kind of stumbled our way into like collecting all of this data. And so we're like kind of a, a stitching algorithm away from actually like getting this data to be, you know, stitched together and a profile made across all channels. And so it was more of this vision that we had always had. It was certainly rooted in things we had heard from customers but it was a little bit more abstract. And I think in some ways we may have even made a mistake. We we went really deep and, and built the infrastructure and kind of went into a hole for three or six months and probably not some repeat, um, building this you know really robust infrastructure to stitch together profiles, host those profiles, and then do compute across, on top of those profiles. And by compute, I mean the ability to compute audiences and compute traits. And so we had this very long investment. Yeah, I think it was about six months in, in retrospect that while it was rooted in this thing that we knew people needed, we did not set up that project to get sort of the you know weekly or at least monthly sort of iterative feedback that we we usually like to get. We just had strong conviction in the product vision. And while Personas has been very successful and and certainly continues to grow today and it continues to be, I think, more and more of like the core use case that people hear about segment and, and come to segment to solve, I do think that moment sort of six months into the project felt like this very risky moment where we hadn't done all of the homework and we didn't have a super clear set of users like chomping at the bit to to use this thing. And I think that was hard and, and not something we we probably would have tried to de-risk that infrastructure and try to build it in ways that was a little bit more incremental. And I, I think we could have done a better job. And actually we came out of that six months having built this very powerful thing that luckily was like along the right lines. But it was after that six months that we actually figured out what the features were and what the package was and exactly what we would call the product and exactly like how we'd think about it. Uh, and I do think in some ways that was a bit backwards and, and not exactly the right way to do things. I do think we had the right vision and it was rooted in a real problem that we had done proper research on. And that is why it worked out in the end. But I think the actual way we chose to execute on it was not nearly iterative enough. I also think some of the things I was talking about earlier of just having a whole new buyer and a whole new end user of the product, since this really is for marketing teams uh, trying to personalize their campaigns and trying to save money on, on sort of wasted ad spend. We just hadn't, like, that's a brand new relationship that we needed to form in organizations. I think that was like a whole other thing that, that was challenging. So that was kind of product number one, uh, a little bit more, you know, it was a founder really leading it and like a little bit more vision 
led and that vision was rooted in things, but definitely like a, the more kind of typical vision led product development. And I think the other one and the the thing that we try to strive to, to do a little bit more often now uh, was sort of like a deeply customer problem led initiative. And, and that was our protocols product. And that, you know, was started simply enough by, you know, uh, one of our product leads starting to just ask questions of customers, both successful customers, customers who were struggling, you know, prospects who weren't customers yet, just kind of asking them what their biggest problems were sort of around the space that we're in. And it turned out that the answer was pretty unanimously, uh, whether it was a prospect, an unhappy customer, or a very successful customer. The problem was almost always scaling data quality because you know you have this powerful API that you install in your application that you know starts sending events, and then you have a new team that comes on and starts sending more events. And pretty soon you have this totally unwieldy set of events and you have like six generations of the events. And what people really needed was this sort of common data dictionary, this place that they could look up to see what the actual correct event was, see comments on that event, be able to, to actually programmatically verify that that tracking plan or that data dictionary was actually being enforced. And so, you know, we said, oh, well, we're sitting at a really interesting part of the ecosystem to, to basically go solve that problem. Specifically, we're sitting right at the ingest when the data is collected before it gets sent to those 10 or 20 or you know, however many downstream tools, we can actually enforce the schema right there. And, you know, actually we just recently launched the ability to actually fix data before it goes to the, the tool downstream in the wrong format. And so I think that one was cool because that was really co-developing the features and listening to the problems and saying like, well, if we did it this way, would that be helpful? And we actually ended up building three different prototypes with three different ideas of what we thought the right solution was to this. And one of them seemed much more sticky than the other two. And we, so we ended up killing the other two, which was very painful, even though we had only invested a couple of weeks in each of those two to, to build that early prototype. It, you, know, you, you still get very attached to it. It's, it's very hard to, to let it go. But we, we managed to get through that for sort of the greater good and the, the one that we really wanted to ship. And so that one ended up just, I think... The buyer was easier because we had been working with all of our existing buyers and champions to build the feature. And so they really understood the value because it directly addressed the problem that they had told us about. And so that go-to-market motion ended up being much more natural. I think that actual time from early idea to getting into production was much faster, but also maybe a slightly less ambitious infrastructural investment compared to personas. But I do think that sort of time to refining and, and just getting things right and getting things to exactly solve the problem um, was much faster just because the, the approach is pretty different. And so I would say the more scalable approach is definitely the latter. And as we've tried to and as we built new either feature add-ons or even just enhanced existing features, we've really tried to follow that mantra a little bit more closely. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Talk to me a little bit more about the co-development process, how you did it, you know. Yeah, so I'll just talk about how, how we tend to do it today. Um, we Or yeah, how we did it then too. I think it's, it's all pretty similar. Typically, we will get, you know, we'll identify a couple of either prospects or customers. Typically, we like to work with existing customers already just because we have a relationship with them and they tend to understand the segment world a little bit better, but it's not completely uncommon for us to work with prospects, but we'll, we'll identify a couple. I think the key is actually not to get too, too many. So often we'll like limit the number of slots we have for something. And depending on the product, it might be three slots. It might be 10 slots, but we want to have pretty deep relationships and we want to make sure that those folks are ready to actually 
do their part in sort of giving us feedback. And like, if there's work needed on their end to set any of this up, we want to make sure that they're committed to this as well. And we'll just, you know, get in the Slack channel and, and start, you know, every time we have an update, we'll send it to them. I think uh, one of the meta things we're doing is we're trying to take notes on like how many people drop out of it, because if a lot of people are dropping out, like, you know, we recruit 10 people who say they're really, really excited. And then, you know, after two weeks, zero of them are actually doing like, you know, working with us still or providing us feedback or telling us how they're using it or, you know, getting the thing set up. That's a sign to us that we need to probably keep searching. And so even just like the meta piece of looking at the stats of how it's going and, and getting a good gut feel and being really honest with ourselves is, is a super important step too. But yeah, then typically getting in these Slack channels and once you do start finding that thing, those start to heat up and get much more active. We'll often set a goal of sort of before, you know, when we're in the really early phases, we'll set a goal of getting screenshots from three different customers explaining the value that they're getting out of this. And uh, that that's like a nice, like really early phase goal. I think three is a nice number just to make sure it's, you're not doing like work for a single customer, uh, their own custom dev work, which is easy to slip into. But I think when we have three customers sort of telling us a variety of use cases or a variety of just like how we help them in particular, that's a really good sign. And so often like for a quarter's worth of work, especially if we're just starting something, the goal will be like three screenshots of Slack conversations with customers to, to prove that we're on the right track. And then I think just looking at like how many customers we start with, how many end up just deciding that this isn't worth their time, uh, which is fine. It's good to learn that early, but also just be intellectually honest about, about what's happening. But yeah, it's it's all pretty simple. It happens over Slack. And I think, yeah, pretty pretty straightforward. I think it's just more important that you're actually paying attention to the high-level dynamics about what's going on. Any you know quick tips or, or quick things you see that product leaders typically do wrong? Like here's three things to avoid. The, the biggest by far is not actually looking in the mirror and taking like an honest assessment of where things are. I think everyone, and I, I'm equally guilty, uh, not just uh, PMs and you know, not just engineers, like everyone involved in sort of funding a project and getting excited about an idea, you tend to like really want that thing to succeed. So I think that getting attached to something means like not taking a critical enough and hard enough look in the mirror about what's going on. And often you're like a small pivot away from actually the thing that's really, really valuable or really, really important, but you're just kind of like pretty committed to this one idea. And so I think my job as a the leader of an organization is to help create the space and create like a, a culture where failure is not just okay, but, but celebrated. And we celebrate, you know, learning from this. And I think if people are getting slapped on the hand for this, it's, it's a really bad situation because then you just get even more committed to these ideas. But I, yeah, I don't know if I have three tips. I think I have one tip, which is just that that is the problem where this falls down. People stop like really listening to their gut about how things are actually going and they get committed and they have this goal over them to make this thing work. And, you know, occasionally that that works. But I think when you can actually zoom out a little bit and take an honest look in the mirror and be truthful with yourself and be willing to throw something away or be willing to make a serious pivot, those are the really healthy teams that that actually over the course of a year or two seriously innovate and, and make the step function changes to, to the business. Awesome. Well, let's talk about data a little bit and, and metrics in particular. Talk to me about, you know, as a product leader, what metrics truly matter to you and, and what you see as, as strong indicators of success or moving in the right direction. Ooh, good question. Yeah, I, this is one of the hard ones because I think it really is quite different for every team. I, I often think of my role as making a bunch of different sort of territories for, for people to play in. And I think it's great when those territories kind of have a single North Star metric that they're really pushing toward. And I think that metric 
should be connected, obviously, to the overall business success. But I think, you know, having like that acquisition and activation team, like really focused on sort of getting the number of activated accounts who've sort of hit this aha moment up that might make perfect sense for their North Star metric. Whereas the North Star metric for uh, personas and protocols, at least in the early days, was closed revenue. And, you know, it was like pretty clear sort of add-on revenue play. And so wanted to build something valuable enough that people would be willing to, to go pay for that. And so the way I kind of view the world is like each of the teams has sort of has these non-overlapping North Star metrics that clearly feed into the overall business success. This sounds quite simple conceptually, obviously. I think this is way uh, easier said than done, actually getting a meaningful North Star metric. And I, I think there's still teams today that we've struggled to, to find what that is. But I think those teams, when you don't have that clear North Star metric and you don't have that clear territory that's being owned and what's being driven toward, that ends up being the place to spend the time and, and maybe rethink like what the team's mission and vision is, or maybe rethink, you know, think of something even bigger than the, you know, the smaller metric that you were thinking about. So I would say, yeah, uh, Ben, who uh, leads our product team and I spend a lot of time kind of looking for the places where that North Star, that single North Star metric is not as clear as it could be. And like working with those product leaders, those engine leaders, and, and really, frankly, those whole teams to figure out what that should be or how we should adjust it. But yeah, I think it's like a, a really hard problem to divvy up all the territories and then make sure each team has one North Star metric. But I think it's really, really powerful when we achieve that. And I think outcomes like the, the personas and protocols outcomes came from pretty crisp theses on like that we could build something valuable, pretty crisp goals on exact revenue that we wanted to drive within an exact runway. And I, I think certainly not always capable of coming up with these amazing metrics myself and, and really lean a lot on the, the product leaders to, to come up with them. But I think that teams are healthy when they have that sort of single point of view. And that doesn't mean it needs to be your North Star metric forever, but you know, for a quarter or half year or a year, it's really, really healthy when, when you're looking at that one metric. And I think the common mistake is actually to look at 10 metrics or eight metrics or like some really complicated thing that's hard for people to understand. That I think that's like one really common mistake. And I think the other common mistake is to pick a metric that you don't actually have control over. So so actually, personas and protocols sort of gave up their revenue metrics after that first, call it, you know, 5 million in ARR, because that goal really became much more of a sales goal at that point. Whereas we as product managers felt that we had the ability to really affect and help own that first, you know, 5 million in revenue for each of those products in terms of embedding in the, the sales team and training them and, you know, helping them with the pitch, obviously, uh, you know, AEs and, and other folks were involved too, but we really felt we could affect that for a while. And, and now that those products are, are much larger, that's great and it's exciting, but we've actually come back to metrics that are less about overall revenue and more about things that we, act, we can actively control in the product. So I think, yeah, two tips are just like simplify it, preferably one. And then the second is to, to make sure you actually have the ability to influence your metric and you're not just setting a metric that depends on another team, since I think that's always unempowering for the team. So these days you oversee engineering product design, like we talked about, you know, three big teams, I imagine, at Segment and in most places, uh, and three kind of, you know, populated by different kinds of personalities, different kinds of makeups quite often. How, how do you motivate them to work together? How do you ease the friction that inevitably comes between, you know, product and engineering or product and design? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, I think one of the things we really believe in is really having sort of engineering product design leaders kind of always come together to 
you know, for accountability, for delivering updates, you know, being that that unified front. I think one of the anti-patterns is that, you know, have me or an engineering leader bugging the eng team about like why something happened, you know, such and such happened. And then the, you know, our product leader, you know, bugging the product team about why such and such happened. And then, you know, design leader bugging the design team about why such and such happened. We really have pretty I mean, obviously we have sort of functional teams of engineering product and design and those functional teams spend time talking about the craft of engineering product and design. But I think everyone's first team really is that cross-functional sort of unit. We call them the, the group's pillars and then we call the, the teams underneath pillars teams. So that team that has an engineering leader, has a product leader, has a design leader and are all working together, that's really where we do our accountability. We ask that whole team and that whole leadership team to show up and talk about what went well, what didn't go well. And I think I think when when those folks feel like they're all in it together, suddenly a lot of the tension of like, oh, well, product gave us an unreasonable spec or engineering is moving too slowly. It's like, we want to hear from both of you how you're solving each other's problem. And, you know, if, if you need to hire more engineers, which, you know, is a common case, like often a product manager can be super helpful in getting involved in interviews and helping close, you know, helping get people really fired up about the vision and close great engineers. You know, Sometimes the product manager can help like rally the troops to refer people, you know, whatever it is. But I think when it's like those people talking about their problems together to the, to the leadership team or, you know, whoever the, wherever the accountability goes, I actually think that's one of the most important cultural pieces. Otherwise, I think you can really get that friction out of control quickly, which is like you ask Eng what's wrong and it's, it's a product problem. You ask product what's wrong. It's an Eng problem. You ask design what's wrong. It's, you know, an engineering and, and product problem, whatever it is, I, I think having people show up together uh, really eases that. And then I think, you know, the other piece is just having people learn about each other's craft is really, really awesome. And I think, uh, you know, we have a couple engineers who are really passionate about design. And, you know, one of them in particular sits in the design reviews and you know, jokes that he wants to become a designer. He might be serious, I'm not sure, but he really craves like, understanding what's going on in that design review. And so the empathy that that creates or, or, you know, the engineer coming along to customer meetings can't emphasize how important that is. Obviously you, you encourage Uh, this cross pollination. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I, I think, I mean, obviously all of Eng product and design should always be focused on the customer. And so the more customer exposure, you know, traditionally that's a little bit more design and product led, but it's so powerful when engineering is actually in those conversations and, you know, some of our, like our hero feature uh, for protocols is this feature called typewriter that started when an engineer was in a, the tech lead for the team was in a customer meeting and they were talking about how they wanted this thing. And he came home from that meeting and he couldn't go to sleep that night. And he cranked out a prototype until like 4am because he was just so fired up about the idea. And he saw a connection of like what the customer wanted and what was possible based on what he knew about how uh, code editors worked. And he just built a prototype that night. And like that whole hero feature just never would have happened had he not been in that room. And obviously there's efficiency things. It's not that you want like the full eight person engineering team at every single customer meeting. But I think a lot of the weekly demos that we do, the product manager is bringing as much customer context, usually has brought an engineer along to those you know customer interviews. But I think that cross-pollination is the other piece of it, in addition to the kind of joint accountability, which really prevents some of the finger pointing I've seen in in prior lives. Awesome. So Tito, talk to me about scaling high growth teams, right? When you joined Segment, it was 50 people and now it's over 10 times as big. And this is over a course of 
how many months I should probably say? <laughs> 48 months. I just, I just hit my four years here. So, so uh, you it, know, how do you, how do you hire, build, ensure success when the company's growing that quickly? And obviously, you know, it has all of those things that come along with that rapid growth, right? Uh, high expectations, fundraise, you know, all of those things. How, how do you hire, build, and ensure the success? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, I, I mean, I think, I, I do think it's really important to focus on just sort of like what your specific problems are. What are your customer problems? What are the company problems you're trying to solve? I, I would say that for each of the four years I've been here, uh, there's probably different nuances uh, to those problems. When I first joined four years ago, I think we had built a lot of systems that had just gotten scaling requirements thrown at them from customers that were bigger than we were expecting. And the, you know, several of the systems were, were kind of falling over four years ago. And, and it really, it was clear to me that our big challenge was kind of sort of senior people who had seen scale before and like kind of much more senior engine managers who could figure out some of the, the process pieces and just kind of bring some sanity to just the way we actually built things. And then I think actually after a year or two, that really stabilized and we had problems about like, you know, how can we spark really creative new product ideas and how can we create that energy that, you know, now that we have this infrastructure that's much more trustworthy and we're not spending time fighting these fires, like how do we do that? I think my point here is just, it's not like a one size fits all thing. You really need to ask yourself, like, what are our particular problems? What are we hoping to solve through hiring? And uh, you end up, when you think really critically about that, you end up really defining sort of the job description or the, you know, the job spec of what you're looking for much more accurately and then you ask yourself, like, how do I rigorously interview for this? Like, what are the three must-have qualities that I want? You know, what are the nice-to-haves that I can do without? And you really, like, spend a lot of time actually constructing a great interview loop. We love to construct interview loops that have as much sort of real-world problem-solving as possible. So I'd much rather be pair programming with a software engineer than doing a whiteboard question since you just don't do much whiteboard. I mean, you do architecture whiteboarding for sure in the job, but you don't write much software on the whiteboard in the real job. And so I think we're trying to simulate as much of that. The product manager, we're trying to understand like what their prior journey was at their past company or internship or whatever. And and then also trying to understand sort of how they would do in sort of a more collaborative setting here. But yeah, a lot of just like really thinking hard about the job spec and what we really need, how to really, really evaluate that. All of those things are required to be really buttoned up and really well thought through before we even start talking to candidates. I felt the lazy side of me forgets all of that really important foundational work and just jumps straight into the interviewing. And you end up both wasting your own time, the candidate's time, but you also sometimes make suboptimal decisions because you haven't actually done all of that foundational work. So if, if there's one piece of advice I can give is just like really spending time thinking about these critical questions and doing the hard work of building a great interview panel and like aligning everyone and getting everyone fired up about this before you talk to your first candidate or certainly before you bring them on site. I think that's like the biggest lesson I've learned. And I, I know it sounds good and I, I don't always do this as well as it sounds, but I, I think uh, I continually learn that when I skip one of those steps or am somewhat lazy about it, it always comes back to bite me. So I, I am getting pretty good at, at always doing this now. And it's just from, from hard lessons. But I think at the end of that whole process, you end up with someone really great who can actually solve like the problem that the business has or the customer has or like the thing you need to do. And that's really awesome. And, and when you don't do that, you can end up making mishires or you can end up, maybe it's not a mishire, maybe they're great, but they just like want to solve a different problem than the one you have at hand. And, and you know, that ends up causing friction and tension and attrition and other bad things. And so, yeah, I think 
I think that's the biggest thing. The other thing about, you know, high growth teams is just your problems change quite a bit. And I think that's, for me, that's the fun part. I think whenever I've been at a company long enough that it feels like the problems I I've had are, are like pretty similar or, or too similar for you know a year or two, then I start getting a little antsy. But with these like incredibly high growth from 50 to 500, our, our problems have changed night and day at least three times. And I, I think that's really fun as well. But it does mean that as you're going to hire, you, you really need to think about what success looks like and what you want this person to do. Yeah. And they have to be able to shift context and perspective rather quickly when things are changing that fast. Totally, totally. Yeah, I think uh, certainly past experience with the kind of crazy that is hypergrowth uh, is useful so that they, they know what they're getting into. Not Certainly not strictly necessary, but I do think, yeah, that context switching and is definitely an important, important part that we're all, we're all doing all the time. Well, awesome. Well, as, as we wrap up, let's finish this up by talking about you. So what's your favorite product? Oh, my favorite product. I think One Medical. I really have always hated the doctor for as long as I have lived. My dad is very, very afraid of doctors. I've just always had very negative connotations. And I, I just think the ability to actually have this sort of modern, this modern experience with doctors and just like schedule an appointment online, not wait in a waiting room that makes me deeply uncomfortable for 30 minutes, and then just like go to the doctor and, and have a, a great interaction. Um, that is a sort of not so standard tech product, but it's like a product that has really moved my life forward in in a big way, sort of moved me from being deeply afraid of of the doctor to having a good time when I go there. I'll definitely check it out. So one one final question for you today, three words to describe yourself. Oh, wow. Another one that I should have prepped more on. Uh, Optimistic, enthusiastic, and ambitious. I think those are the the three words. I think uh, optimism is really important as you're trying to, to scale a business, I think you need to be sort of internally optimistic. And I think enthusiastic and ambitious are just things that have always been part of me ever since I was little. But I think the optimistic one is actually the really important one for, for doing this role. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.